Well, good morning. I'm Stephen, the pastor here, and I want to welcome you. We are in a series right now, for those of you who are guests, it's called Servants and Leaders. These are the men and women who build the church. And last week I said something controversial. Um, I said, and we began to talk about the role of elders in the church, and I said that the Bible says that elders have to be men. Uh, and so this week I want to talk about why the Bible says that. Uh, and this, again, is a very controversial topic because it's very out of step with our culture today. Um, very out of step. But it's not just out of step with the culture. I want to show you today that the Bible's teaching on this is also out of step with churches that portray women as inferior to men. Okay? And so that's what I want you to see. I want you to see that the Bible doesn't endorse uh, our culture's feminism on the left but it also doesn't endorse the church's patriarchalism on the right, okay? The culture's feminism says that there's no difference between men and women at all, no difference whatsoever. And the church's patriarchalism says that women aren't good for anything except making food and making babies. Jesus is opposed to both, okay? Jesus's true way is not to the right or to the left. It's a way forward. Okay, Jesus uh, refuses to go right because the right has too little a view of women. But Jesus also refuses to go left because the left has argued that there's no difference between men and women. And so both Jesus and the Bible aim for incredibly strong women who use their strength to strengthen the male leadership in the church. Okay, that's where Jesus takes us. That's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at really one passage in the Bible in 1 Timothy. It's in your bulletin if you want to look there. Um, There's a place to take notes as well if you want to write something down. Um, This passage and things in this passage are going to make some of you angry. I just want to put it out there. There are times when the Bible says things that make you angry and you're accurately understanding them. (laughs) The, The Bible does make us angry sometimes. I think you're going to find that some of the things that seem like they, well, that make you angry when you understand them may actually, uh, once you interpret them right, um, you might find something really different um, in the midst of of some of these verses. Um, As we walk through it, though, I think you're going to see that the Bible's view of women changes everything. It changes everything about how we think, um, and so I'm excited about today just to give you a, here's where we're going to go. The Bible's view of women. We're going to see first that the Bible exalts women in verses 9 and 10 of First Timothy 2. Uh, we're going to see the Bible limits women in verses 11 and 12. And then we're going to ask and answer the question, like, why? <laughs> why did God do it this way in verses 13 to 15? Because he could have done it a lot of other ways. He chose to do it this way. Why? We're going to try to answer that question. And so first, let's look at how the Bible exalts women in verses 9 and 10. Let me read these verses. Well, let me just say first, before I read the verses, the Bible exalts women as it addresses the issue of clothing. Okay? It looks bad. (laughs) But when we walk through it, you're going to see that this is exalting. Okay? So let's look and read these verses together. It says, Likewise also, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
So it says, let not women adorn themselves with costly or ostentatious clothing. Now, there are people, a lot of them in the church, who have heard this and said, well then, all right, women need to wear denim jumpers and white turtlenecks. That's what my Bible says, right? Anything else, come on. This is wrong. This is misunderstanding the Bible. That's not what these verses are saying. And so we need a little bit of historical background, okay? As I studied the first century culture, what things were like, um, you're not going to be able to relate to this at all. So I'm going to have to explain to you what was going on back then. There were women back then who spent huge amounts of time dressing up for social gatherings and public events. I know, right? It's kind of weird. Like, why anybody would do that? Back then, this is what they were like. Um, there were women who dressed also themselves. They, they dressed themselves in ways to get the wrong kind of attention, if you know what I mean. Um, and so it's not that wearing braided hair or having gold or pearls or costly attire is necessarily wrong. These, these, these pieces, these examples are not always wrong, but it was the heart behind what the women were wearing that was the problem, okay? And this is where the Bible is super helpful, I think. The Bible here is helping address the heart of these particular women in, these, in this particular church. Um, the problem was that we, these women saw their worth in what they wore, Okay? They saw their worth in what they wore. For them, their best chance to be someone was to dress to be a spectacle. Okay? Costly clothing meant they were worth something. Uh, dressing to get the wrong kind of attention because for them, they felt like that was all they could get. That was the only way they could get the attention of others. These were women who in their hearts, whether they would say it or not, because typically nobody ever says this, but in their hearts, they were feeling like, without this kind of attention, I am nothing. They saw their identity wrapped up in what they wore. And so the Bible comes and it says, ladies, you are worth so much more than that. You're worth so much more than that. You have so much more to offer than simply the clothes on your body. You are so much more than an object to draw the wrong kind of attention from someone else. I mean, is it degrading to tell women then to dress with modesty and self-control? Or is it liberating them from an appearance battle that they will never, ever win? That's what's going on here. Because even if these women get the attention that they want, that feeling of having that attention doesn't last. And as you go to that well, you have to go deeper and deeper. You get more and more consumed with your appearance. And so instead of that, the Bible wants to set women free. It wants to exalt them. It wants to let them know they are worth so much more than that that they're so much more important than that. And so instead, at the end of verse 10, the Bible says that women should adorn themselves with good works. With good works. Now, this might sound like a nothing phrase to you, good works, but this is an everything phrase in the Bible. 
okay? You can't just run over this. This isn't just being a nice person. No, no, no. It's so much more than that. This is a radical affirmation of the incredible power that women have in the Bible. Good works are works that are done specifically by the power of God's Spirit. Good works are Jesus himself working in you to change you and then to work through you to be a blessing to others. That's what this is talking about. It's the power, the powerful love of Jesus. It's working through you. It's flowing through you to other people. These kinds of good works, the kinds of good works that the Bible describes are good works that are impossible without being united to Jesus. These good works are women being strength for others, giving strength to others. And so this call to women to wear good works is a call to, it's affirming the status of women as full recipients of God's salvation. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening in this passage. And so Paul is saying, he's the author here, Paul is saying, look, why would you wrap your self-worth in how you look when you can focus your life on displaying Jesus and being known for treating other people with Jesus' love? I mean, how insignificant does what we wear become when we're focused on wearing the person of Jesus, by wearing his power, his love, his joy, his peace, his understanding, his ability to say the right thing at the right time, his ability to come alongside somebody. I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is what the Bible is aiming us at. Now, this kind of call for women to do these kinds of good works was so different from the patriarchal culture of Jesus' day. Because again, back then, women were primarily valued for how they looked and for their ability to have children. In the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, many men, listen to this, many men in their daily prayers would thank God that he did not make them a woman. I'm not endorsing it, I'm just describing this was the culture that Jesus was living in. This was their view of women. But the Bible doesn't treat women this way. The Bible says that God gives his power to men and women. In Acts chapter 2, when the new covenant church began, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and it's really clear there. Peter says, he says that the Spirit will be poured out on your sons and your daughters, that men and women will experience God and manifest the gifts of God in a way that was unheard of in any other culture of Jesus' day. And so women have the fullness of God in them. They are not secondary. They are not second-class citizens. Men and women were called to live new lives. And so there are, if you do a search for just the phrase one another in the Bible, you'll come up with about 50 or 60 different hits. I'm just going to give you the highlights. The Bible says to men and women that you are to care for one another, comfort one another, serve one another, instruct one another, teach one another, admonish one another in all wisdom, encourage one another, and build one another up. And so this is a word to men and women. The Bible liberates women to have a radical impact on others. And so when the Bible tells women to dress in good works, 
It's saying this, it's saying, look, eternity is at our doorstep. Forever is right around the corner. Women, don't get caught up in worthless things. Don't let the culture around you deceive you into thinking that you are only worth what you wear. And so far from being demeaning to women, these two verses are exalting women. It's affirming their full status as daughters of God himself, adopted children who bear his name to do his works with his divine approval. In addition to this, I want to add that Jesus himself also affirmed women. Jesus led a revolution that changed how people thought about men and women and what they could do. Jesus bucked every cultural trend that wasn't from God. He didn't cow down to anybody. He didn't, he didn't um, hold back. Jesus had Mary, not his mother Mary, but another Mary, sit at Jesus' feet to learn. For a rabbi to have somebody sitting at his feet, that's someone who was a disciple. It was unheard of. No rabbi would do that, but Jesus did. Um, Jesus restored the image of God in women and exalted them. And so the Bible does the same. So Jesus and the Bible exalts women. But as with anybody who's exalted by the Bible, the Bible's exaltation also comes with limits. And that's what we're going to see next. And so we've seen how the Bible exalts women, but second, the Bible also limits women. This is verses 11 and 12. And again, I want you to remember that this, what these two verses say is in the context. You've got to remember the bigger picture of the radical equality that we read the rest of the Bible in. The rest of the Bible has this radical equality for women. And so it's in that bigger picture that we see these two verses um, and we read these restrictions. So verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So again, this sounds harsh. It's upsetting, right? It's passages like these that make people think that the Bible is outdated and patriarchal. Um, But remember, Jesus is not on the side of the right or the left. Jesus is creating a third way forward. Um, And so first, in these verses, like I just want you to see, it says, let a woman learn. And I want to reiterate, that was radical in Jesus' day. Outside of Jesus, women were not expected to learn. But the Bible says that they need to be free to learn. Um, They need to be free to know the Bible deeply, to own theology. It's abundantly clear in the Bible that the church desperately needs the perspective of women. It needs women who are filled with the Bible, who understand it, who know how to share it, who know how to apply it to life, who know how to apply it to other people in the church, and to assist the male elders and deacons in their leadership. And so let them learn. This is, again, Jesus separating himself from the right, but he also separates himself from the feminism of the left. Because, again, against the backdrop of the exaltation of women, the Bible gives this limitation. And a huge part, let me just say this, a huge part of growing in your relationship with God, uh, of maturing as a Christian, is learning how to live 
in a relationship with God where he has authority. Right? It's really, really, really difficult. And if anybody tells you otherwise, then, I don't know, maybe you just shouldn't listen to him anymore. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to live in a relationship, to have a relationship with someone who has all the authority, right? Because um, what they say goes. And that's kind of how it is with God. <laughs> what God says goes, and what God has inspired in the Bible is a reflection of his authority and part of growing in our relationship with God, part of maturing as a human being, I would say, but also as a Christian, is learning how to live within the limits that God sets in the Bible. And I want to say, too, everyone lives under the authority of God. Everyone has limits, both men and women. Elders have limits. Pastors have limits. Deacons have limits. Everybody has limits. Everyone is called to live within the limits that God sets. And I would say, too, that there's actually no blessing from Jesus outside of the authority of Jesus, okay? And so if you're not willing to accept the authority of God, I hate to tell you this, I don't hate to tell you this, I'm torn, um, you're never gonna be happy. You, you won't ever be happy because you're gonna fight and claw for what you want and you're always going to be dissatisfied. Um, even if you get what you want, it's not going to make you lastingly happy. If you have to fight the Bible and ignore what it says to get what you want, you're going to continue to fight with the Bible and ignore what it says if you get what you want. And you're not going to be satisfied. Paul says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So what does this mean? Uh, well, we know what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that women can't teach. Um, we actually see in other parts of the Bible, we see examples of women teaching children. That's 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, that doesn't count though, right? You're like, yeah, I get that. That's still very demeaning to say that women can teach children. I get it. All right, well, so the Bible also says that women are to teach younger women. Titus chapter 2 in a glorious thing that might also not satisfy you, right? Because again, it seems still demeaning. Well, here you go. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. It says that there's an instance where a man and his wife together um, go to a man who is preaching. So there's a preacher, a guy who is called mighty in the scriptures. This guy's incredibly eloquent. He's an amazing preacher. And yet um, these two go to him and along with her husband, this woman also actually helps a preacher to understand the gospel and the Bible more accurately. So in addition to that, we've already seen from the one another's that we looked at before that men and women are called to teach and to instruct each other with all wisdom, to build each other up, and so to admonish one another. And so we see that there are places for women to teach. And so then what does this verse mean? Um, what does this verse mean, that I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? Well, this is a phrase, to teach and have authority. This is a phrase that describes the role of an elder or a pastor in the church. That's what this phrase is describing. And in the very next chapter, like four verses after this, in chapter 3, it's in your bulletin, um, 
you'll see that the Bible goes on to describe that elders or overseers are to be men. Okay? If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, um, I'll just give you the highlights here. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's chapter 3, verse 1, um, the overseer is the elder. Words are interchangeable. And it says in verse 2, there to be the husband of one wife. Um, literally, the translation is, there to be a one-woman man. Um, in verse 4, it says that he must manage his own household well. And in chapter 3, all of the adjectives are masculine. They're masculine adjectives. And so this passage is saying that God has limited the office of elder and pastor to men. And this isn't just true here, but this is true everywhere the Bible describes this. Here in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, also in Titus 1, it makes it clear that elders and pastors, this role is to be occupied uh, by men. And the biblical evidence is compelling. It's compelling. So let me say this. Um, it's really easy to focus on the one limitation, okay? If you're frustrated and you're upset, um, I've been frustrated and upset all week preparing for this. Um, it doesn't, it's not the same thing. Um, but I do want to say that I know that it's so easy for women, but it's not just women because I do this in my own life. It's so easy for women, though, to hear everything that the Bible says about, um, uh, about women, everything, in every way that the Bible exalts women, in every way that the Bible says that they're incredibly strong and have enormous gifts and God wants to use women to be an incredible influence on the world and then get hung up on the one limit, right? It kind of reminds me of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Where God said, look, every tree, from every tree in the garden, you may freely eat, there is just this one that I'm asking you not to touch or don't eat from that. So everything you can have except for one. And what do they do? Oh, man. I mean, who knows how long it took them, right? But they focus on the one. The whole New Testament exalts women. It affirms their status as equal heirs with men. It was radical in Jesus' day, but we tend to focus on the one thing that's the limitation. And I want to say too that it's important to know that Jesus himself also affirmed this limit. Okay? He did teach women when no one else would. He honored them in ways no one else would. He blessed them with his Holy Spirit. He made them full heirs and gave them equal standing before God along with men. Even in his resurrection, Jesus first appeared to women. And so people have seen this and they've said, see, women should be the same as men in the church. Jesus left the patriarchalism of his day far behind. And to that I would say, yeah, you're right. He absolutely left the patriarchalism of his day. He was the most countercultural person who ever lived. Again, willing to stand against anything that excluded people, anything that kept people from living up to their God-given potential. And yet, when Jesus called the 12, when Jesus reestablished a new nation of Israel to replace the failed nation of Israel of his day, when he called the 12 apostles, Jesus himself chose 12 men. 
Jesus, who never bowed down to any cultural trend if it got in the way of God's purpose. Um, If Jesus were trying to communicate that egalitarian feminism uh, was right and was the way of God, he would not have called 12 men. Jesus demonstrably moved away from patriarchal oppression, from the domination of men and the domination over women, and yet he chose 12 men to lead the church. And this is the teaching of the entire New Testament. Women are exalted throughout the Bible and they are the strength of the church. And yet still the Bible says elders are to be men. So women are to be strength. We've seen that. We've seen that in the last couple of weeks. Um, please go back and listen to those messages if you haven't to talk about how incredibly wonderful it is to be a woman. And yet they are to come up under the authority of elders in the church and to lift them higher. They're to find their role to be similar to the role of Jesus, who was equal with God the Father and yet submitted to his Father's authority. So this is the limits that the Bible puts uh, on women. So we want to end our, uh, our time together just by answering the question, why? Verses 13 to 15 give us an answer, but why is this? Right? Why does God have men and women who are equal in his sight function differently in the church? Um, these three verses will tell us that it's actually part of God's plan to save the world. And each one of these three verses tells us a chapter in God's story. And so, verse 13. Why? First, it restores God's design at creation. Okay? 1 Timothy 2.13 says, For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So God made Adam first, and God made Adam to lead. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 say. He made Eve to be his strength. And this verse reminds the church of God's design at creation. Okay, then it goes on. Why? Well, this distinction between men and women reverses the fall of Adam and Eve. Verse 14, as, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, this sounds bad. I've been in churches where I've heard teaching that, that this teaching about male elders and pastors is actually punishment against the woman, against women because of what Eve did. I've heard other people actually say that, you know what, it's because women are more susceptible to temptation that we cannot allow them to lead. Awful. It's awful. It's not true. In fact, if you kind of look at what happened, so Eve is deceived and Adam is standing there and just does it with full knowledge. I mean, if you're looking for leaders, wouldn't you rather have someone who has to be deceived to do something wrong than someone who's just willing to headlong go into the things that are bad? So even the logic of that interpretation doesn't make sense. 
Have you ever wondered what was supposed to happen in the garden between Adam and Eve and the serpent? Like, what was supposed to happen? Like, if God, if Adam and Eve were doing it right, if Adam and Eve did it the right way, what should have happened? What verse 14 tells us is that when the church follows the Bible, we can find out. What do I mean? Well, when the church is led by elders who are men that resemble chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it is the reversal of the tragic story of the Garden of Eden. Okay? In the Garden Temptation, Adam was a silent bystander who checked out and let Eve be deceived. The serpent goes to Eve, has this conversation with her. She decides to take the fruit, eats of it, and then she says, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate too. The heck? Adam literally standing there. I mean, that's the picture that we get. I mean, there's not a lot said. It might be speculating a little bit, but, but Adam was a silent bystander who checked out and let Eve be deceived. He failed in his responsibility. Eve was deceived by the temptation. It's interesting too, because Eve, even Eve, right? She was deceived. It says that when she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, and that it was good for food, and it was good to make one wise. But, so Eve was deceived by a similar temptation that what's mentioned in here uh, in verses 9 and 10. Right? Eve was deceived by the temptation for what was pleasing to the eye. Fruit then, clothing here, I don't think it's a coincidence. But when the church follows God's way, when the church both exalts and limits men and women, this doesn't happen anymore. Men are fully engaged and actively leading in the church and they are protecting the church from the deceptions of the evil one. You see that? Why? It's because God wants to reverse the story of the Garden of Eden. God wants human beings to get it right and they get it right in the church when men are actively engaged and leading when women are the strength of others, when women are serving the church with their gifts, with all of their gifts, when women are adorning themselves with good works so that the church is incredibly stronger, incredibly more powerful, incredibly more encouraged, incredibly lifted up because of the presence of women, when women are praying and doing everything they can in their power to get the men of the church to lead the church, when they encourage the men who lead the church, no longer are they deceived by the devil. No longer are they chasing after stuff that doesn't matter. The reason why God says, I don't want uh, you know, women to be in authority or to teach over a man is because God wants men to be in leadership. God wants men, that's how he designed them. And he wants us as a church to be replaying the temptation in the Garden of Eden, but us, men and women together, crushing the head of the serpent when he comes to tempt us. That's what he wants. 
And God wants men and women fully engaged together to make it happen. That's why this, these verses, this is the redemption of the Garden of Eden. Then there's one other verse here, verse 15. Why? This model also preaches the gospel of Jesus. Okay? I'm going to get you angry again. Verse 15. Yet she, the woman who was deceived, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Women brought us into sin, but if she's barefoot and pregnant, she can redeem herself. I mean, this is how these verses have been interpreted in the patriarchal, unbiblical church. That is not what this means. Um, This is one of the verses where it's helpful to know a little bit of Greek, okay? Because the Greek actually has a word in it that isn't translated in English, okay? They just sort of drop it off. Um, And so here's what the Greek actually says. It says, yet she will be saved through the childbearing. There's a, it's called a definite article for all you non-English grammarians. The definite article, the, the word the is in the Greek, but it's not in our English. And so it sounds like, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Sort of this general bearing of children will save her, but that's not what the Greek says. This is why you need a pastor who preaches to you, who has some fluency with Greek so that I can see these things and say, wait, 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 no, 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 don't misunderstand this. It's actually far more glorious than you think. So this is not childbearing in general, but this is the bearing of the child that will save her from her deception and her transgression. Who is this child? (laughs) You think? You think this is the one child whose birth has changed history forever. This is the one child who reversed the effects of sin and transgression and the fall forever. It's Jesus It's the one God promised to send. It's the seed of the woman who was promised to the man and the woman in the garden after the fall. It's the woman's descendant who would destroy the devil and all of his works. And so these women, instead of being deceived by the devil in the church, they worship the child who was born. They worship Jesus And so they are filled with God's power to do the work of Jesus. They're not deceived anymore by a culture that's trying to get them to find their identity in how they dress. They're not like Eve. They now define themselves by following the child whose birth changed everything. And this is glorious. This is glorious. And it paints for us a vision. It gives us a vision for our church family where we have both men and women fully engaged with all of their heart and their mind and their strength. And that's what we have here in our church. We have men and women who are fully engaged. We have men and we have women. I mean, just so you know, like for women in our church, This could look like leading our prayer team. 
This could look like leading our care team, the team that comes alongside people who are hurting and in trouble, and it brings the, the resources and the wisdom and the money of our church to help them when they're down. Um, this looks like women who are discipling people and leading in our life groups. Um, and, it's, and these women are doing this in our church because they want to serve, right? They help the church to become better. And there are women all over the place serving in our church. They're not just in leadership. And they're not doing this because they're women. They're doing it because they're gifted. And they have a passion. And they stood up and said they want to serve in the church. And they had gifts to be able to lead. They wanted to do something more. And so, man, some of you, you might be frustrated because you want to be doing more in the church. And so, if you feel that way, I would say, what do you want to do? Like, what's holding you back? Like, where is our church falling short? What does our church need? What do you see that we don't? Last week in our Sunday service, um, we had a time of prayer and lamentation over the shooting that happened in Orlando. Um, We begged God to reach across um, boundaries where the church often doesn't go and embrace the gay community and comfort them and do everything they could. Um, That happened because a woman in a life group asked the question in a discussion, so what are we doing about Orlando? What are we doing about what happened? And so, friends, we need men to lead. We need women to be strength. We need our church to continue to grow stronger and stronger. We want to care for more people. And I want to invite all of you to join in. Not everyone is going to be an elder, but not everybody has to be an elder. Um, All of us are called by God and given his power so that we can make a difference in the lives of other people here in this family, but also in our families at home, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our city. Um, This is the kind of family that God wants to unleash in the city. It's a family that exalts and honors both men and women. Um, It's a family that is learning to be comfortable living underneath God's limits, understanding that he knows what's best and getting a chance to retell the story of the fall and to show people what life is supposed to look like, especially as we live under God's authority. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this third way. Thank you for not for not standing with the patriarchalism of your day or our day. Thank you for not capitulating to the feminism of our culture today. Jesus, we pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would help us in a couple of ways. Lord, help us to follow you into this third way. Help us to exalt the women in our church um, and to appreciate their contribution and their gifts and their strength. And I pray too, Jesus, that you would show each one of us how you want us to make a difference. Show us how we can serve here in the church to make it stronger, 
but also help us to see how you have wired us to serve in our communities, our homes, and our workplaces. Thank you for being the child who wasn't just born, but you lived and you died for our sins so that we could have renewed power and live out your new story. We pray this in your name. Amen.